Good morning. Uh, Scripture today is from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Reading from ESV. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why many, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard him, heard he had said, try again. The reason that the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the word has gone after him. The word of the Lord. Before we move to the sermon this morning, just want to mention a news story that some of you may have heard this morning already, and that is uh, of uh, a violent and terrible tragic event in Egypt this morning at Palm Sunday services in, in uh, Coptic Christian churches. And when I looked this morning, there were over 40 people who had been killed in explosions in a couple of different churches in Egypt and uh, there were bombs that had targeted mosques as well. And so uh, you'll hear more about that later But uh, as, as you consider the news. But I want to pray for, uh, for these people. Let's pray together. Lord, make us mindful always as we gather to worship that in so many places in this world it's not such an easy task. Here... I mean, so often we consider whether we feel like going or not. And yet, in many places in this world, just just gathering to worship you uh, becomes a bit more of of a statement in and of itself and something that that can be, in some places, dangerous. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray your mercy for those who died in these attacks. And we pray peace. We pray even for those who perpetrated these attacks and have a terrible, misguided view of the world. We know that this misguided view of the world can exist in all faiths. And so we pray for our friends in Islamic community as well who will be having conversations about this also. Lord Jesus Christ, would you show your healing and your mercy and your love even in the darkness. And as we think about Palm Sunday this morning, we gather to consider that triumphal entry. We consider that you knew, Lord Jesus Christ, so much more than any of those people celebrating this supposed triumph that day. We hold on to this now. You know so much more now. And so would you minister to this in this world and speak to us in the hearing of your word. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen. 
in a list of feelings that you don't like to feel. I, I haven't met anybody yet who likes to feel uh, an emotion or a feeling that I'll describe in just a moment. So I think it ranks rather high on the list of things that I don't want to feel in life and don't enjoy. I can look out at many of you, and you've actually told me some of you occasions when you felt this emotion. That feeling when you want someone to be happy, someone that you love, a friend or a family member, and you want them to be happy particularly because you have done something for them. And it took maybe some time and some emotion and maybe some cash. You've done something for them, something, in fact, expressly with the intent of making them happy. And then when you give the gift or go on the vacation or take up the experience, they're not happy. Isn't that a terrible feeling? This can cause destruction in marriages that are weak, can't handle things like this. It can cause damage in parent-child relationships. You're, you're apt to not find many other ways to let people down more severely than not being happy when you're supposed to be happy at something they've done. Some of you have mature relationships that can manage these kinds of things, and you can talk about it. But for some of you, this is still a terrible difficulty, and it never feels good. The time comes, and there's a letdown. No big smile, not much of a reaction, maybe even the opposite of what you anticipated. One of the words that is good for us to know in the culture in which we live is this word. You like it? Impress your friends. If you don't like it and you don't care, then you're just doing it. It's the word insouciance. Ready? Everybody say it together. Isn't that great? You can just because you can just go. It sounds like you're saying it. And what insouciance means is, and dictionaries don't define words as well as many words like this as descriptions or pictures or metaphors or emotions. Insouciance is a shoulder shrug. Right? Insouciance is one of the times that I encountered the word first was people talking about uh, being in New York City at the bottom of these huge skyscrapers, and people just kind of going, hmm, whatever. It's big in our culture. You're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Ever been there? And somebody you're with is like, yeah, big hole. And you want to be with anybody in the world except them at that moment. Or you return from Nepal. And one of the things that you encounter and face is that people who live here don't seem absolutely overwhelmed at how wonderful it is to live here. Because you, like, want to cry just that you can brush your teeth with the water. And people are, hmm, or worse. It's a bit of a diversion for me to mention it because it's not... I'm mentioning it because it's not exactly the emotion that I'm talking about when I say you've done something to make somebody happy and they don't seem to respond appropriately. I'm speaking about something slightly different, or quite different, but it's hard sometimes to see. Someone who is not normally depressing, not a downer type, 
Because insouciant people tend to be insouciant all the time. I mean, young people go through an insouciant phase, most of them, and particularly when their parents are taking them to something. It's necessary. Don't be upset at the young people for this. It's always been this way. And parents like to do things like, you know, so-and-so was really happy, you know, because to tell you that there's one kid who doesn't act like that. But most kind of, uh, whatever. But someone who's not normally depressing and not a downer type, and their reaction at something that you should think should generate positive emotion or happiness, instead seems to invoke its opposite. Something like they're not there. I can picture being in Disneyland or something like that. And you've taken a child there. And that child, and you're now in the happiest place on earth, which when we've been to Disneyland a few times, and we took our kids when they were little, and we always looked for the first parent yelling at a kid. And it was always before you got into the gate. These people have spent a lot of money to go to the happiest place. Like, just like that. And you get in there, and your child isn't excited. They're maybe even pensive. And so you ask them that top question, what's wrong? What's wrong? Maybe they're scared. Maybe something else is on their mind. Maybe they're not really there in, in their head. You know what I'm saying? Now, you could get angry, but that's just going to make it worse. You better darn well have a good time. I didn't bring you here so you could hate this. Or you do something for your spouse. As I say, a gift or something else. And they don't respond like you want them to. They're maybe quiet, maybe sad. And so you ask them, are you okay? That's if you're able to reach out rather than to just get upset because you feel something wrong. There's a word, it's a a strong emotional word, but I want you to think about it for this this morning, and that's heartbreaking. These can be really small and even funny times, but when you really feel it, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I have put myself out there for this person. My heart's broken now. And what do you do with a broken heart? I mean, our self selfish nature lashes out. That's why we do most of our destruction when we're in pain ourselves. Heartbreaking. So here we are, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And I want to give you an important instruction, piece of church or theological instruction as we enter into Holy Week. We're moving towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I I could actually just say this thing every week because I don't think we've got it yet. And my heart breaks at how I think, I believe, but I strongly believe that Christians often in the world, particularly in the West, have a very troubled idea uh, as to what constitutes kind of strength and victory in our faith. So the caution is this. In Christian faith, always... We ought to be careful when we come across words like triumphal, triumphant, victory, and power. Everything true and beautiful and transformative about Jesus Christ comes into play in the cross. But so often we want a Christianity without the cross. 
We want a Christianity where somebody else is just defeated with power, as we understand power. God's power comes in weakness and vulnerability. Christian understanding of victory and triumph and healing and wholeness ought to be quite different and at times entirely unlike the understanding that the world has. So we say from our scriptures, Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death. Amen, hallelujah. Triumphing over them by the power of the cross. Do you you see how different that is than the way of the world? But so many of you want to run, even in your Christian faith, to things of worldly victory and power. You have a lot to learn, we all do, and much to mature over. Most of the time, the stories I hear still of Christian victory are ones that kind of have a worldly tinge to them. And they might well be real and true. But it seems often to me that what gets us excited is winning like the world considers winning. We're going to encounter difficulty with that as we move to how Jesus Christ brought victory. Thomas Akempis, who was pre-Reformation, paved the way for people like Martin Luther, has a wonderful reflection in his book, Imitation of Christ. It's a devotional writing. And it's longer than this. I can get it to you if you would like it. But the heart of this little reflection is that Jesus has many who love his kingdom, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who welcome suffering. In fact, there's a popular strain of Christian theology now that basically says if if you're suffering, then something is wrong with your faith. It's heresy. So every time we consider Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, we must be cautious in our understanding. You just were singing. All for love's sake became poor. The crowd of people who jubilantly welcomed Jesus Christ and ushered him into the city anticipated something. They anticipated earthly and worldly power and victory. And they were self-centered like you are and me. And so they thought, this earthly, worldly power and victory will bring me something good. And when that happens, you lay down your palms and you scream and cheer. Because next week, by next week, I mean, Jesus is entering the city, and by next week, my life is going to be better. Within days, at best, these people had abandoned Jesus. And at worst... Some of them were part of another crowd, screaming out violence and demanding his death. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crowds are fickle. It's the same today. Don't live your life for the adulation of a crowd. It's devastating. If not now, eventually. So the scene told in all the Gospels, which ought to tell you that this is an important scene, You look at where it is in John. It's only the 12th chapter of John. 
you're just past halfway through this book and you get the entry into the last week of the life of our Savior. Years of ministry, but this last week takes up one-third of the Gospels. This should be instructive to us. Our understanding of Jesus Christ, our understanding of faith. See, what we do so often is we turn faith into lessons because people don't really know how to live very well. And so we take religions, particularly Christian religion, some religions this is what they should do because it's the heart of their religious understanding. Christianity is not this way, but sometimes, you know, the way we, we organize Christian faith, it, it has more akin to, to other ways of faith. So we take faith and we turn it into lessons. Morality tales, do this and don't do this, good and bad, right and wrong, these things are not unimportant, but they're not ever the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this, and that you would ask it on this Palm Sunday. What does it mean that Jesus gives his life for the love of the world? There's a pathetic nature to this particular parade on Palm Sunday. And if you're embarrassed by that, or if you don't want to admit it, then, you know, it's maybe a sign that you like those earthly displays of power. Because it is pathetic. You have a man who claims to be a king of a kingdom riding into this city on a donkey, which was not the same as a king really, truly claiming power. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, to be sure. But there's very little planning to this. Jesus, you know the story about him telling the disciples to get, don't just take it, the guy won't mind, whatever. It's impromptu. And people laying down the palm branches. These types of displays are repeated to this day. We don't get to see them so much because we live in a world where we kind of secure off the, the marginalized. You know, in, in particular areas and regions. And if you kind of are okay in life, you don't maybe mix that much. But these displays still happen around the world where the downtrodden and the oppressed those living in occupied lands, they find ways in which to defy and mock the powers. Not always and maybe not often, but they find ways to declare, however meager and unreal, their independence from the control of their oppressors. I recently read this autobiographical account. I actually listened to it by audiobook, so when I tried to find this story that I'm going to refer to, I couldn't remember it. Angela listened to most of it as well, so I think this is from here. But if it's from another book, then this is a, a young man named Trevor Noah. He took over from John Stewart, a comedy news show called The Daily Show. He was born and raised in South Africa, born to a black mom and a white dad, which means at the time when apartheid was still the law of the land, he quite literally was born a crime. And he could never be seen with his mom and dad. And he's written this autobiography, and I believe it was in there, and if it wasn't, it there, was, there were similar scenes that talks about events that could happen in townships where you would have these people who live, obviously, in quite extreme poverty, but they would find ways to express joy and celebration, whatever. And when he was growing up, there was one old man in this township who lived near him, and this man would declare every now and then that it was his birthday. Nobody really knew their birthdays, or most people didn't. Certainly not an old man living in a township in South Africa. 
But for some reason, this particular man, when he declared it was his birthday, and he might declare it once every two years, or it might be two or three times in a year. You didn't really know how to keep track. But when it was that man's birthday, they would have a parade. And everybody from around the little places would gather, and they'd bang whatever instruments they could find, and they would march. And now, was it for that man? Partially. But it was partially a way to defy the authorities. To say, we still get to choose. There was, to some degree, that nature with this triumphal entry. That's why the word triumphal is kind of ironic. Because no triumph was achieved as any of the people there would have understood it. Here, the city, the center of power, controlled at the time by the Romans, but the center of power in the region, the place from which people wanted again to rule in their independence from Rome, and Jesus was coming to assert and declare that he would get power. That's what they thought. So it's a political statement, a hopeful and defiant statement, but it is as pathetic as some of those current parades. A donkey and hastily palms and clothing. And in the description in John chapter 12, John gives a great deal of commentary In fact, most of what Richard read for us was John's commentary on the scene. He connects it to prophecy to remind them that, and in a way, they had to be reminded because it was far less than regal. So the people like, remember, this is how we were told the king would come, on a donkey. And then John gives his commentary, and his commentary includes these comments. The disciples did not understand what was going on. And the crowd was there because they had heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Which might be a reason you would show up too because you might be sick or might have a loved one who is dying or just died. John tells us these comments about the disciples and why the crowd was there. Jesus might have the power to free them. We're told the Pharisees were there as well, frustrated and shaking their heads. In Luke's telling... Luke 19:28 and following, Jesus, as in the other gospel accounts, says very little and almost nothing. And it's not just because this kingly figure kind of rises above the whole crowd and in some arrogant posture, right? You people soaking up the adulation. He says very little. The Pharisees holler at Jesus in their frustration. They intercept and infiltrate the crowd and move towards Jesus and say, tell these crowds to shut up. See, they're afraid as well that he's going to take power. And he says, and there's some sorrow in this, not just, he says, I tell you the truth, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. Something significant is happening. But Jesus doesn't seem to be responding like he's supposed to. Further in Luke, the reaction that I describe in that. Jesus should be at this moment defiant and strong and proud and victorious. And so many Christian writings would have that be the case. Not describing this scene, but considering faith today. Strong in ways that we understand strength, but look at Verses 41 to 44 of Luke 19. You can look it up on your own later. Jesus in this scene, in Luke's telling, is upset. 
he weeps. Sorrow. As they move towards Jerusalem, and now he can see the city, he addresses the city itself. He speaks of darkness and loss and death. He speaks of coming destruction. And he says this to the city. If only you had known. If you had known. My faith, my devotional understanding of this, like I can talk to you about my faith, but I experience my, my faith in some ways like, like you do, in, in my own mind and heart and head. We share it, which is a wonderful thing. But my devotional understanding of this, my faith, when Jesus says, if you had known, one There's a lot of things that happen, but one above all, I say this and I pray this. My Lord Jesus Christ, you were in this moment becoming alone. See how he's being separated from the crowds and the city and everything else? Something is going on with Jesus that nobody else gets. He's aware of this. Why this reaction to the adulation? There's a swirl of people and a swirl of hopes and expectations around him, centered on him. And he reacts with tears and sorrow and relative silence. And the word for this is heartbreaking. Do you see that he is becoming alone? There are things of great importance here for you person who's been a Christian for 50, 60 years, or 10, or 20, person who wouldn't quite muster up that place to say, I'm a Christian, I'm willing to say for every person in this room, there are things of great importance here. Because here, in this moment, with Jesus weeping over the city, you will learn of love, and here you will learn of salvation and faith. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann The greater the love, the deeper the grief. The more unreserved the surrender, the more inconsolable the loss. Now, I know you've just done one thing. You've you've thought about, and I'm okay with this, you've thought about how you love people in your life and that this is true. The greater the love, the deeper the grief. The more unreserved the surrender, the more inconsolable the loss. another part of his writing. The person who mourns deeply has loved greatly. The person who cannot mourn has never loved. I would often rather have love without mourning and grief. But I've yet to know a person who gets that. In a smaller but Well, for me, at least, meaningful way that I think can help you identify with this. Uh, Jen and I, some of you had moments like this, uh, particularly if you've been together with partner or spouse for a long time, married for years, whatever. And you can point back to significant times in your relationship where you were able to talk about some of these things. Jen's not here, so I'll get this story 100% right. Um, but I remember it with emotion still. We had been going out for 
a couple or a few years. We went, we went out to get, what do you call it now? Dating? We weren't dating. We were two Christians. We weren't dating. Anyway, um, I asked Jen out at the Finlayson's house on December 23rd, 1986. We made it official. And a few years later, probably a couple years later, we used to go for walks in Stanley Park. Really novel, right? Um, and I remember one time we, we went, and everything was going well. It was, weren't, wasn't difficulty, not a lot of grief and mourning, nothing like that. And we went for a walk one day. I remember parking, and then we started walking on it. I remember, I think, in my memory at least, we were on a part of the seawall that we, don't normally, we, we didn't normally walk, but that might just be how I constructed the memory. And Jen seemed really pensive and a bit sad, quite reserved. As you know, she's very aggressive and loud normally. (laughs) So, and I wasn't feeling great that night either. And I I said to Jen, what's the matter? And at first, oh, it was okay, I'm okay. They walked and talked some more, and then it came out. And Jen said, now we're teenagers at this point. Jen said, I'm just a bit scared. I'm like, of what? And she said, well, we've been together now for a couple years or whatever it was at the time. She said, it's a bit too serious, too real right now. Not like she wanted things to change, but she, she voiced that if this relationship keeps going, I, I'm going to be in at some point for some terrible grief. Then we were probably thinking of, like, what if we break up three years from now or five years from now? That wasn't the case, but we're still in for terrible grief. And we talked about it. You can avoid those conversations. You can pretend that with any single person you love, that won't be the case, but it will be the case. Why is this interesting to me? It's interesting to me because this shows us some of the truth of Jesus Christ. This is the way of love. Can you hear now? He gave his life for you. Consider this in earthly relationships. Love brings pain. It always will bring pain. It doesn't bring pain on all occasions. In fact, these moments of pain for some people are not frequent. But any relationship of love requires the giving of yourself. And if you are unable to give yourself, you will not discover, hear this, you will not discover the depths of love. You could be married for 50 years. Now, consider the way of Jesus Christ our Lord. The one who gave himself for the world. For you. In earthly relationships, you have a friendship. And the friendship is formed by the things you would choose. Time and leisure and fun, sharing a couple drinks or a good meal. Activities you do together. And those are good and necessary things. And maybe they make up a good portion of the friendship. But the friendship finds its depth in times of pain and darkness. 
Family, how's your family? And if you're in a family, I'm the same way. I just want to be able to say to people, family's fine, everything's good. Right? And then you can go down the check boxes. However many kids you have, they're all good. Right? They're making wise decisions. And we don't have too much financial strain. And we're going on a vacation soon. Things are great. And that's good and lovely and wonderful, even though I'm kind of mocking it with my voice. But it is good. I like those times. But you know when the depth of love in a family is discovered. When it's broken. When you don't have control. And when everything's not fine, which, as it turns out, is a lot of the time. Or your spouse, the height of love you can share together. You can't wait to be together. And some people are blessed with this years into marriage. For most of their marriage, at least in our eyes, they might fake it. But they look like they actually want to be together all the time. And it's good. But the depth of love in a marriage is discovered in the times of loss. The words I have in my mind, it's hard to, to, to put them grammatically correct, which is awesome because even that phrase was in, incorrect grammatically. But the words I have in my mind as I'm talking about this with a marriage are when your spouse begins to be away from you. I don't mean like an affair or they leave or something like that. What I mean is in every marriage, your spouse will eventually be away from you, whether that is sudden or gradual. And some who experience that gradual nature of that, it's a difficult, difficult time. Aging or becoming sick. What's the depth of love then, or even after the loss? What is happening with Jesus Christ here in this place? And I put this scene together where he's looking over the city with the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane because he seems to be experiencing similar emotions in these two places. The triumphal entry, this is my own commentary. You don't have to say it's right, that's fine. But it's my devotional commentary. The triumphal entry for Jesus is another version of the Garden of Gethsemane. What is happening here? He is loving this crowd, these people, individuals in the crowd, He's loving this city of people and the swirl of them. And he's loving the world through all time. He sees so much further than those people see that day. And he sees so much further than you see because you see mostly your life and your need. And guess what? So did those people that day. So join the crowd. Put down your branches. And say, next week my life will be better. Something so much deeper is going on. And so the question for you is, how does he love you? They didn't understand that day, and neither do we so often. To understand love in any meaningful way, you have to ask this question. Think about it with the love of Jesus Christ. For your own understanding, how far do you see? You see, mostly, I do this too. I'm not condemning you for it. It's part of the human condition, I think. We see mostly our immediate joys and challenges. So we, we, and we evaluate things that way. If God blesses me, these things will work out. If God doesn't, these things won't work out. Well, maybe not that neat and tidy. But we see mostly the immediate. And that's what was happening that day. 
these followers and the disciples, the crowds and the Pharisees, they saw the immediate context. And Jesus was loving them further than they could comprehend. You get, I, I really want you to try to understand this. Because you're coming to Jesus with all your stuff, which I say, keep doing that. Keep praying for healing. Keep praying for God's presence and blessing within your family. Of course, he does good things for you. If, if those who are evil give good gifts to their children, what is God going to give us? So I'm not downplaying that and saying that God is going to be bad to you. I'm just saying that the Christian faith calls us to understand further than our immediate needs and context. How far is he loving you? So much further than you could even comprehend. What did they want from him that day? Well, you can draw the picture. What did the crowds want? What did the Pharisees want to stop? What did the disciples want? Right? That's why we go to parades. It's not just about the person. We think it's going to like this kind of parade. What did they want from him that day? And then, of course, the question for me and for you following that up is, what do you want from him? This is what I know, and if I don't know much else, that's okay, but I do know this. I know this. I'll say it to you as pastor, friend. Jesus Christ is loving you far further than you can now comprehend. If the Holy Spirit speaks these words to you, not just me, Jesus Christ is loving you far further than you can now comprehend, then you will see them and know them. So what can you do in response? Firstly, we're going to take communion in a moment. You can receive. But you can surrender to this love. Go ahead and throw down the palm branch. Maybe even holler out hallelujah or hosanna. But are you willing to lay down your life? And then secondly, lift up the name of Jesus Christ in your life, in this world, in this community, not as the one who has come to hate, to tell people how terrible they are, but as the one who has come as the lover of all the world. If the Son of Man is lifted up, hearts of people will be drawn to him. Jesus Christ is giving himself for the life of the world, and we're going to gather again on Good Friday and enter silently into this place with a service of consideration where you individually can consider, Lord Jesus Christ, what have you done for me? Let's pray together. And I'll pray for the offering and the communion as well. I want to thank you, actually. I don't often do this. I used to do this more because I used to feel more nervous even than I do now preaching, but thank you for your time. I determined that this morning as I was preaching, you kind of decide partway through, I'm not going to worry about it. So, but I appreciate that. Let's pray together and receive communion. Lord Jesus Christ, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, would you speak to us as we receive this bread and this cup, your body broken for us, your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, so that we could see by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit what it means that you have given your life for the love of this whole world and for us, for each of us, we pray also for the offering that will be, that will be taken.
that whatever resources we give back in worship would be used, that your name would be lifted up, and we would see hearts drawn to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.